Hello, this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Friday, May the 28th, 2001, and this is one more of our ongoing series of LSAT Life Podcasts about LSAT, life, and how life changes or perhaps ends once the LSAT enters your life. And I continue on as usual with Keith Seiska from Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. How are you doing today? Another week? Another few hundred LSAT questions? <laughs> How has that affected your life? Oh, I'm tired. For the better, obviously. Well, it's yeah, Friday. Does that mean anything to you as, as, as LSAT tutors? Or do all of the hours of the day and the days of the week just sort of blend into an eternity of LSAT logic? <laughs> I I made it a, I made a conscious decision a number of years ago that I was going to save the weekend for my family. So Friday is a, is a, is is good news for me, uh, but uh, but I know that all you out there listening are are going to be wading through mounds and mounds of LR this weekend, and I can't wait to hear all your questions on Monday. And you are waiting anxiously to return to the fold on Monday. That's right. That's right. Keith, tell me about your weekend. What's happening? I try to take weekends off too, so I may be heading down to Austin this weekend. I haven't decided yet. Well, so looking at the LSAT study group, we were talking about this a bit early, but somebody asked a question. What is the best resource? to study correlation and causation topic in LR. What's the best resource to study correlation and causation? And I looked at that in our sort of pre-podcast discussion and said, I don't understand that at all. I mean, isn't the answer built right in there in the question? And immediately he told me that the LSAT is evolving. I think that's true. So why don't we begin with that? How's the LSAT evolving? What do you think, Keith? Uh, they're testing um, causation in a different way in LR, and it is um, exposing some nuances of correlation and how we use it in argumentation, whereas I think the LR sections used to focus on how we don't or shouldn't use it. Now they're getting a little more crafty in forcing the student to understand what would be a fair use of statistics and data in causal reasoning. That's so much harder than just, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. Oh my God. Thank God. I retired from this years ago. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you have to deal with this and not me. That's for sure. It's because funny. it is true that, you know, the whole correlation versus causation issue has been around since the beginning of time. On the L, as, as we know from our last discussion, the world did not exist before LSA, right? Of course not. So it's been around since the beginning of time, but honestly, for years, I mean, the right answer was pretty much the equivalent of correlation does not equal causation. Yeah, and we we've we've been discussing this, Keith and I, over the over the last year, and you know, I, I think what's critical is reframing that statement a little bit. Um, I think that oversimplifies to the point where it becomes nonsensical. 
correlation doesn't equal causation. What, what it really should be is correlation doesn't prove causation, right? Correlation alone doesn't prove causation. Because the problem is when you look, when you look at science, right? How does science evolve? How, do, how does it progress? Right? Scientists don't go out into the world completely blind and attempt an experiment with no data, no input. Instead, they observe the world. And when they observe the world, what do they observe? They observe correlation. They observe phenomena. And they say, the world has a thing that it's trying to tell me. I notice A and I notice B and they seem to happen together. What does that mean? And then they explore it. So it's not that causation, correlation doesn't, is not equivalent to causation or that it doesn't indicate causation. It does. It's just not enough. And so the question is, when is correlation relevant or valuable? Uh, and we need some understanding of how that comes to be. Good Lord. So what you're saying is that uh, causation probably, I guess, would always include correlate, correlate correlation, but correlation would not always prove causation. Is that a reasonable starting point? Yeah, sure. Necessary, but not sufficient. Oh, my God. Well, that would link it directly to one of, you know. Oh, this is good. Like it link it directly to some of those LSAT buzzwords. Okay, now that's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah now in all seriousness, um, I would have to think that the LSAT test designers would have a field day on all the opportunities on this kind of thing, right? Yeah, and it's becoming increasingly more prevalent. Um, you know, in in you know, obviously Keith and I have done you know all, all these tests in the seventies and eighties, the PT seventies and PT eighties, the last ten years worth of tests. You're, you're true LSAT historians. Yeah, o over the over the course of the last couple of years, and over and over again. But but in the last six months, as we've been dedicating ourselves to the progression of those tests in order, what we've noticed is a trend of increasing uh, focus on causation. Um, we just finished a class on practice test eighty eight which is a very recent test. And one of the LR sections, half of the questions had causation in them, half. Yeah, it was really interesting. I set out to try to make a, a, a lesson on causation and had so much stuff to choose from. It was like, oh, well, that's an easy lesson to make. So we did a two hour lesson on Wednesday about causation and how it applied to that section in particular. Yeah. So if I'm understanding you, if there's 20, 24 questions, you're telling me that out of 24, 12 of them had causation we, issues? We, we found 12 out of 25. Yeah, with causal reasoning, uh, some of them, you know, good reasoning, some of them bad reasoning, but 12, uh, about a dozen questions that involve causal reasoning of some sort. Yeah. And of those, we thought that there were about half a dozen where a failure to have a robust framework of causation was was critical. You know, I mean, the, the other six questions, you could kind of get there, process of elimination, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but there were about half a dozen questions where you really needed the framework to even rationalize the correct answer. To even that's get not, that's how. That's awful. <laughs> now, let me, let me ask you this. Well, among other parts of the test that always sound awful, but you know, say you were to link this to 
you know, some kind of, you know, coursework, academic background? I mean, are there courses that prepare people for this kind of thinking? I think you have to start with statistics. I really do. Um, you know, I've, I've tutored stats for years and um, I think statistics is a very uh, under under delivered topic in mathematics for for middle school and high school kids. There was a turn back to it over the course of the last 10 years. The Common Core really wanted a, a focus on data and statistics for I think it's I think it starts in third or fourth grade up and integrated into the math curriculum. Um, but without the beginning of statistics, it, you know, statistics is sort of divided up into into sort of two sections. If you take a, a stats 101 or a AP stats course, right, you sort of have your first couple of chapters that are on survey design and study design and um, stratification of studies and, and what a simple random sample really is, that sort of stuff, the, the fuzzy part of stats. And then you get deep into the numbers and you start, you know, five number summaries, mean and, and Q1 and Q3 and all this stuff, maxes and mins and getting on to standard deviation, really complicated, um, really complicated calculation. But the first half of the course is enormously relevant to what we do on the LSAT because it's the understanding of what makes a reasonable study, what makes reasonable data, what makes the data valuable and applicable to a situation. And that's the kind of, that's part of the thing that you need to know for causation questions on the LSAT. You need to know that the thing that you're looking at is a reasonable way to make a conclusion. So I think that's number one. I think you need that first half of stats one. Keith, did you take stats? You know, I had a, a background in science and I got a real deep dive into stats doing a master's thesis on some immunochemistry work involving like thousands of data points. So my, my work background gave me the, the stats knowledge. But, um, <clears throat> you know, you asked earlier if there was were courses on on stats or on the broader issue of causation. And um, I think they're rare. But I had an experience where I used to teach a weaker framework for causation than the one I teach now. And it was actually a student who provided this more robust framework for me because I asked a class one day to define causation. And uh, the girl raised her hand and, uh, and she gave me such a, an accurate and precise response that I was stunned. I mean, speechless for like 30 seconds. I was like, hold up. How do you know that? I mean, like I want I wanted to pause the class and really inquire about how she had come up with this framework. And it turned out that she was taking a class at UT that semester called the philosophy of causation. And her professor had given her this three part framework and it was probably part of the syllabus. You know, they spend a few weeks reading materials on the first element and then a few weeks on the second element and a few weeks on the third element. And she was able to recite a really cogent rule so cleanly that I just adopted it. And I've been teaching it for 10 years since. So that was a philosophy course, the philosophy of causation. So that would not have been a, quantita a quantitative course particularly. Would that be correct? Yeah, I don't think that was the focus of it, but there was, you know, one of the elements or prongs of the causal reasoning was correlation. And so I'm sure that they read materials and discussed what that element meant for the the framework overall 
I didn't That's take the course though. So. Well, I, I remember taking uh, taking stats uh, back in the day. Um, I don't remember a single thing about it. It's too bad I didn't know you then, Jake. <laughs> Well, uh, let me let me let me offer this. You know, one of the things that Keith and I talk about a lot is creating uh, visual aids for the things that are abstract. Right. When we have abstract concepts, it's very hard for us to wrap our heads around it without putting something on the page. This is why when I'm teaching math, I get people to say, look, pencil to the page. I want you to draw a diagram. So one of the things about stats that I keep telling my LSAT students is if you don't remember what a scatter plot looks like and when two variables correlate on a scatter plot and when they don't and what a line of best fit is and when that line of best fit and the scatter around it is highly correlated and not, if you don't have that visual for what it means to correlate, you need to go back and learn that because wh when I'm reading <clears throat> something abstract, something verbal about correlation, my mind is already creating a picture, a graph for myself, a scatter plot for myself, so that I can say, I see the correlation. I see the way that it's tight around the line of best fit. I know that this means that it's more likely that these two things have a relationship. Wow, that is that is truly amazing. I mean, is this going to is this going to redefine what LSAT preparation is all about? I mean, a separate module, LSAT causation, honestly, or causation I, LSAT style. I mean, I hesitate to say that we need to, you know, throw out what's there in favor of something entirely new. But there, this is certainly an arm that is unaddressed. Wow, that's very very interesting. Well, it sounds as though it sounds as though you are pioneering at least the idea that this is a, a separate thing. Let's just see what some of the comments were on this. Hang on. <laughs> no, one of them's Keith's. Okay, well that counts too. That counts too. Okay, just a minute. So we have here what's the best resource to study correlation? Wow, I mean this really is getting to them. All right, Keith starts with come to my pro bono sessions and ask. It's so complicated and there really is no resource to point them to. That's the problem. It's probably why the LSAT's moving in that direction. They're moving away from the resources and toward, you know, testing the students sort of uh, thinking more directly in yeah. improvisational kind of thinking. They're hoping the student doesn't have the right framework for this. Are you suggesting that you think LSAT's not necessarily their friend? It's their friend because if they get the framework, they will be able to think about this problem in such a more uh, organized way. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, well, thing, I think the LSAT is your friend. Yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like LSAC, th their job has to be to constantly steer away from the prep materials, right? right. I, I absolutely. There's no doubt about it. No I, doubt I forget about who it is who, who had the quote, but it's the thing about once you reveal the means by which you take a measure, the measure ceases to be a good measure, right? Um, I forget who the quote is now, but, but ultimately, right, once you reveal the framework for your standardization, right, and people understand what the test is, then it's no longer a good measure of the thing you're trying to measure. So LSAC can't stand pat for 20 years. They have to 
steer themselves toward a place where they've got good distribution of success. And if the prep material has done such a good job of outlining exactly what all the different kinds of questions they can have, you know, let's think about something simpler. The old well, it, it, it doesn't do a good job because it does too much. Well, right. I mean, the old yeah, SAT that's, that's had, vo the had vocabulary, right? There were, voca yeah. there were vocabulary questions. The problem is they drew all the vocabulary from the same 20 books. So yeah. as soon as people realized that and they gathered 2,000 words that represented all the vocabulary that they were testing, all the SAT kids were memorizing those 2,000 words and they knew all the words. And then it wasn't testing anything anymore. This well, is called Campbell's Law, by the way, that Campbell's if you... Law. You know, that the, the measure, when the measure becomes the goal, it corrupts the measure. And so because students have the goal of excelling on the LSAT and they go out and study for it and learn all of these models that are specifically geared for it, then that makes the results less reliable. And so they have to, as Jake puts it, steer away from those organizational tools. And the success of the loophole book may to some extent account for why they've had to make this shift because I think that they had found a really uh, clever way to trick people that just worked continuously for a long time until she put a really clean explanation on, on how to look for it and defeat it. And so now I find that that method that was working very well for me for a very long time, it's good for two, three, four questions now. and. Beyond that, I have to look for other models, whereas that used to be my my bread and butter, the false equivalence. Interesting. So this correlation versus causation thing is evolving. What are some others? Well, while we're talking about things that evolve, what are some other areas that you've noticed have evolved over the last, whatever, three, four years? Hmm. I mean, that, that's a microsecond, I think, in LSAT. Logic games. There's always new wrinkles in logic games. And what's interesting is that when I sit down to diagram new games, I'm usually frustrated and I'm like, it's almost as if someone designed this game with this kind of diagramming strategy in mind. And they thought, what would be really hard to diagram visually? What would be really hard to account for if I was gonna make a diagram that looks like the ones on the market? I mean, it's just too often to be a coincidence, I think that the hardest game on the section really makes the diagramming process difficult, sort of deliberately. Do you agree yeah. with that, Jake? Yeah, I do. I do think games are getting, are, 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 I mean, games have always evolved, but I think we're past the days where the first game is a simple sequencing or linear game that you can knock out in four minutes. I think we're, I think that's gone. Um, and and when they get when they get complex, they got complex in really interesting ways. They're messing with distribution, right? That that you're not going to have set distributions. They're messing with frequency. Tiles can get variables can get placed more than once, twice, twice in the same spot. Really strange rules. They're they're coming up with with other ways to. I mean, it's still all deductive, right? It is no, the skill is all the same. It's just that if if you are trying to be an automaton and just say, I've done this kind of game eight times, which kind of game is this? It's not. It doesn't fit cleanly in any box anymore. And you really have to rely on, on the understanding that the it's the skills that you develop through doing games so often that are going to allow you to work through the wrinkle. 
Oh, absolutely. But going back to the general culture of test prep and what's available, uh, would it be fair to say that all of the available test prep material is sort of one step behind the LSAT? But I think, it, I think it has to be, right? Yeah. There's no way that they can be ahead of it. I mean, you know, Connick, They're not I, doing their job if that's not true. L, that's LSAT's yeah. job is to be a step ahead of the the content. Now, the question is, are they even one step behind or two or are three? They, right. Are they multiple steps behind? And at this point, I think that the evidence throughout the prep test in the 80s is so clear that you need a better causation framework that I would say that they're not just one step ahead at this point. They're two steps ahead of the existing materials. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, it's certain it would certainly be hard to steer the battleship at one of these huge publishing companies in the last 12 months, given the pandemic, right. to recreate their materials around flex. I get that. Right. It's a little disappointing, but I understand that that's well, hard. would there have been a need to recreate materials around flex? Yes, these prep tests 80 to 89 were not flex and we're not anticipating the pandemic. This was a designed shift in the content of the exam. No, and but I, I, I think in terms of like in the last 12 months, should the test prep people have done something different? in order to account for the fact that people were taking flex. Yes, they should have offered flex versions. They should have talked about prep in a different way to account for the fact that the test was going to be 40 minutes shorter. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are ways that you could communicate it to test takers that they've got something different coming down the pike for the next year uh, and they have to prep in a different way. The material itself isn't different, but that's not the only part of preparing to take the LSAT. Right. To me, that's step two where they're behind now. They didn't, or, or they were scrambling so much to get students focused on the new structure of the exam that they are completely ignoring a content hole in their materials, which is the causation materials. They're all out there saying, we have the flex exam and students are like, great. Yeah, but what are you teaching them? How are you teaching them to tackle those questions that aren't, uh, you know, aren't well served by the, the simpler materials they're not because they're coming to us and they're saying what the heck does this mean <laughs> yeah it's it's shock it's shocking to people when we say no this is different you know one of the one of the first things i tell people about causation is that there's a huge difference between uh sort of your standard deductive logic and causation and standard deductive logic you can create something syllogistic you can create an argument that is completely airtight and it's true it's valid you it's cannot, a must a must follow from conclusion right. you're talking you about right cannot do that with causality that's why statisticians will not ascribe causality to observed data they won't do it my father's an epidemiologist he's been doing studies for 50 years and he'll never say that a causes b he'll say that they're highly correlated he'll say that there is a there's a decent likelihood but but he'll never say that a definitely causes b and so every causal argument that they put on this test is flawed. Every one of them. They have to be by their nature. What's more is they're flawed in predictable ways. But if you don't know what those angles are, it seems completely unpredictable. Yeah. Well, what would be some of the, the methods of flaw, so to speak? 
Well, the first one is the one that everybody knows, right? The first one is all you told me was that these two things appeared together. That's it. Okay. So that's a flaw. Cause correlation. Right. That's the cause correlation flaw. The problem is that that's where everything else stops. Right. This is like the old the old adage about the, the this is a, you know, a stat, a stats 101 thing. Right. First week they talk about the idea that like ice cream sales and auto accidents occur. In, you know, if you graph them over the course of the year, the curves are incredibly tight with each other. And they ask, what can you say about this? And people start digging into the idea of, well, like, how could ice cream sales affect how many car accidents there are or vice versa? Um, when, in fact, there's no relationship at all. Um, so that's that's certainly one way it can be flawed. And, and, and the prep test material talks about that. The prep test material also talks about specious causes and and common factors. Right. Like it's not actually that A causes B. It's that C causes both of them. Right. Or they'll talk bit about, they are. you know, a so multiple causes, alternative causes. Yeah. yeah we call we'll it the intervening cause, intervening causes. Well, this takes well, let's, us back to, you know, I think it might be interesting, you know, given that we will presume at least for the purpose of the discussion that the LSA is related to law school in some way. Mm. Um, you know, I think it'd be interesting to hear, particularly from Keith. Right. So, you know, you ran a, a torch class for the group, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, torts is rife with causation issues, isn't it? Yeah, it is, you know, one of the, the tricky elements of, of, of proving tort claims because it's so abstract and the legal standard of causation requires you to contemplate this hypothetical counterfactual that never occurred. And um, what I found is that understanding causation from the framework of just correlation doesn't equal causation didn't give me a strong platform for then thinking about the deeper abstract question of, well, then what does constitute correlation? What rule could we put in place to know when a, a one thing has caused another? Well, what's the basic test in tort, in, in tort law? I mean, they use a real blunt rule that i hate but it's the but for test and it God, requires you to has think change this is still the same test well i mean courts are really moving more toward the significant factor test to be honest because it's too blunt the the but for test it works in many cases and and not in others and you know so i find it to be inadequate and i think that they rightfully are moving toward a more factor based uh, so, so isn't it um sort of a, a two-pronged test. We have the but-for and then sort of approximate cause test as well. Is that yes. what it actually is? Sometimes described as the difference between uh, actual causation and proximate cause or legal cause, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, it would seem to me that uh, by expanding the correlation versus causation beyond the correlation does not equal causation they actually are going down the road of an exercise that is clearly relevant to law school right definitely especially this idea of the intervening cause and even when one thing has caused another when has something else you know can be said to be more direct or more strongly related to the effect so that it becomes the more prominent cause to focus on that's been really fascinating to me to think about 
not only in terms of uh, the LSAT, but also in terms of torts and some of the cases that we we talked about. We did a proximate cause case with our torts class, the famous Paul's graph case. So this Paul's is fresh graph on my Long mind. Island Railroad. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Oh my God, I remember that case. What's what's so interesting though is that in the in the dissenting opinion, right? Andrews Andrews sort of lays out this. Uh, you know, I I found ver what what I found very powerful was this analogy about proximate cause. He didn't understand that he was laying out this framework, but he did. He had this beautiful analogy about a stream, right? And you have the cause upstream, and you have the effect downstream. And the problem is what you need is that you need the cause to be close enough to the effect. You need the, the head of the stream and, the, and the, the, you know, the delta to be close enough that you can say that the water from the first input is the water at the bottom. But then you can have all these tributaries that muddy it along the way, right? And if they're all bringing in different colors, different, different silt, different whatever, different sort of textures of water, suddenly the water in the river doesn't seem to be from the source anymore. And that at some point it gets too muddied and too mixed that you can't really meet out what was the the most important or the or the proximate cause ultimately, right? Really interesting. Well, yeah. you know, this is a full semester in law school, basically. All right, you know, and apparently they're still using the same uh, the same basic cases as teaching tools, right? Yeah, it's a rite of passage. I mean, there's that, that's part of it too. How can you? you know, not be able to discuss the Fox case or Paul's graph or the hairy hand case. I mean, that's part of the culture of, of legal education. That's right. Your but predecessors also, had to read those. So by God, you have to read them too. But, but I don't think it's as silly as it is in med school, right? In med school, you, you know, you, you do med school and you do your internship and you have your 36 hour shifts and they're only doing it because the previous generation did it. I think in this case with common law, I think it's really important that you study the cases that the previous generation did. Because if you don't, how can you understand where they derived the new ones from? You need that whole history. I don't know if you need exactly the same cases, but I, you know, but yeah, to be sure. I mean, by definition, the common law is based on precedent, the evolution of it. But mm. okay, so that, so at least what we see here is, uh, and I think that this is sort of refreshing, an unusually clear correlation. Uh, be, yeah, oh my God, an unusually clear correlation just perked up there um, between something on the LSAT and, uh, and and something in law school. Shocking, isn't it? But let's move to causation. Do you think that... Uh, you know, the, the fact that this is in law school caused it to be on the LSAT? <laughs> well, sure, it purports to be the, you know, prep test for legal education. They have a, a, a thing in their in the exam that talks about what it's designed to measure, and it's designed to measure, like, preparedness for law school. So it's pretty direct, and it's tied to, you know, to what, you know, to uh, to graduate study. What about the other way around? Do you think the fact that it's on the LSAT means it should be in law school? No. No. That's not, not, not why that Andrews. Way. I mean, Andrews wasn't discussing proximate cause in 1928, you know, because of anything that LSAT 
was doing nothing that I know Hold of. Hold on, I didn't think there was a world before the LSAT. Was the LSAT around in 1928? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. How, how, when did they start the... It's really model? hard to make sense of the world, isn't it, with LSAT in it, when we start, you know, revolving around LSAT There's history. nothing to correlate it to. What prep test was around, you know, in 1928? I can't, can't say. <laughs> LSAT, I think LSAT was what, late 40s? it came around and the modern prep test didn't until like 70s or so right or yeah. i mean even the even the sat was barely around at, at, during at, you know during well hang on a minute i may be able to get you an answer on that just a minute and S sat was mid mid to late 20s first version of it so they were they just a... toying with the sat when paul's graph was decided exactly. well, i mean they had on it based on a military IQ test. Well, here, you know what? I will I will give you, I'll read you something that actually okay. describes this. Or at least I'll read you the beginning. Here apparently is the history. In the beginning, the world of law admissions was without order and void and uncertainty was upon its face. The spirit of a group of original wise old law professors was emerging to come to grips with the problem. Then, here's your answer, in 1947, a go. group of legal educators acting under the authority of the group of wise old law professors set out to create a uniform national examination for admission to law school. And this group of educators said, let us be called the Law School Admission Council. <laughs> and they were called the Law School Admission Council, LSAC, and they saw that they were good. <laughs> and there was evening and there was morning, a first day. There you have it. That's good, That's good stuff, right? There. Nice. Yeah. So 1947. And yeah, it was a completely different test. I think we were talking about um, artificial language, you know, and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, I actually tracked down. There was a whole history of question types on the LSAT that I found after our last podcast. I'll, I'll pass that around to you guys. It was interesting. Yeah, um, you, you ought to. I mean, it, it's very interesting how the test has evolved. It's also interesting how very clearly, at least in retrospect, they really had no concept of what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, could be. They've gotten better. Well, I, I think it's clearly gotten more sophisticated. Yeah. Tell me, do you think that, what is your view of the quantitative, you know, the past quantitative sections? Do you think that those are a reasonable thing to have on an LSAT or not? Well, do we want our lawyers to be fluent in, in basic quantitative reasoning and mathematics? I, think I, I don't know. I don't know. Do we? <laughs> I kind of do. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's fair to put it on, but what I object to is the fact that they're hiding it on the LR section. I wish that they would just be more explicit about the fact that there is quantitative reasoning on the exam, maybe its own section or maybe as part of the directions. I, I don't know. Somewhere I wish they would signal that because um, I have to explain to my students sometimes like, uh, you know, they'll ask me about a question. I'll say I'll read it and I'll say I'll have to to kind of sigh for a minute and then say, look, 
this one's kind of different, okay? And I hate saying that because I really want to build skills and think about, you know, congruities, et cetera. But for this small subset of questions, I have to say, look, we're not going to use false equivalents or circuits or any of the skills that I've typically set up for you. Um, we're just going to think about numbers for a second and plug this in like an SAT question. And they're like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I, I, and that's not to say that I don't think in the real world you come across an argument that has a quantitative flaw, but nobody tells you it's there and you have to suss it out. That's certainly true in the real world. And maybe we want lawyers to be able to do that, too. But the kinds of LR, the, the kinds of flaws, quant, kinds of quantitative flaws that they put on these LR questions are not those kinds of flaws. These are very specific and designed quantitative flaws that are hard to do without real numbers, but they don't give you real numbers and they don't give you anything to go on. And it's presented in exactly the same way. It's Well, that would have to be incredibly upsetting to people grappling with the LSAT. Cause I think that, you know, one of the reasons, I mean, I think that law can be a great career and all that good stuff, but I think what is a truth for a lot of people is that uh, becoming a lawyer is the only thing left in the world you can do if you can't do math, right? <laughs> right. So it does attract a lot of people who, uh, you know, lack quantitative skills. I mean, maybe we're going at it the wrong direction, right? Maybe we have to fix the math education in this country. Or in well, country. that is a thought. That is a thought. Love to do that. That'd be great. Actually, on that note, in Ontario, I have no idea if this exists anywhere else, but in Ontario, they are now requiring graduates of teachers college, meaning people who are licensed, you know, yep. public school teachers to pass a math test, a basic math test. <laughs> Can you imagine going through all those years of school, including teachers college, and then not being able to pass the math test? New York state has something, or it might be New York city, but the licensure in New York city for public school teachers involves a basic math test and the, you know the bar for passing is not incredibly high but it's there but the thought of it is so frightening yeah but it shouldn't be right if we've got you know if we've got a first grade teacher who's trying to teach six and seven year olds about you know addition right and all they can do for addition is do a vertical algorithm and that's it they're gonna have a really hard time communicating the concept of addition to a bunch of six and seven year olds that have no idea what's going on. Well, they certainly are. And unfortunately, uh, at least maybe this was just my own experience in school, but some of the worst teachers are the math teachers in the lower grades mm -hmm. when it really should be the reverse. I mean, math, I think we've talked about this before, is really uh, probably the universal language of the world. Yeah. You know, I think the difficulties in math that you're talking about also correlate with the what, what we were talking about before, which is people's inability to understand the statistical and causal arguments. And I think part of that is because they think about these things in purely in a purely conceptual level and never in a, in a numerical level. They've never sat down with the data set and thought about what those concepts would mean on a detailed level. And so thinking about how to create a valid sample or a valid study and some of them have never been asked to do it. And then it's, you know, essential for two questions on, you know, on a section. And that is significant to the outcome of the score. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's definitely true that as goes your math skills and math literacy, so goes your ability to think clearly. True. So that can't, that's got to be a factor here. I've said before that I, I think of LR questions like uh, geometry proofs. And when my students really struggle to grasp the whole game, I mean, people have it, struggles in different areas, but when they just don't even know what we're talking about, I, I often think back to, I, I wonder whether they ever did geometry proofs and whether uh, an analogy to that might be helpful if it were available, but I suspect it's not available. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I ever did them in school and I actually did a lot of, ma you know, math. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I didn't okay. do a lot of them, but I, I find that my LR thinking very much takes me back to that kind of framework where it's very artificial and, and, and removed from reality and focused on internal logic and, and not external, you know, ideas. And, and it's a good framework for thinking about it too, right? Because every step is dictated by a rule, right? You want to prove that a square is a rectangle. Well, definition of a square, it has four sides. Uh, definition of a square, it has four, right? Like and every, every, every step that you go down, it is this, it is this because of these rules, because of these rules, right? The sum of, some of the angles in a quadrilateral is 360 by virtue of the following theorem or by virtue of the following rule. And that's a good, it's a good framework to start thinking about how you go about doing deductive logic, what is allowed and what is not dependent on what rules. You know, if we were to go back and look at sort of, you know, what at one time was a classical education, right, which would have included geometry and logic and, you know, great books and things like that, it would have been perfect LSAT preparation, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, school you know, prepares you for the LSAT, imagine. Yeah. You know, the Latin and Greek can't be discounted too, right? All, all of those words on the LSAT that you don't rem that you don't recognize, use your Latin and Greek, done. Well, there is an element of that, or there used to be until recently at least, an element of that on GRE, the vocabulary stuff, right? Where sometimes you, you know, you can base the answers uh, from the roots of the words, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, and that's still there. And, and I think that's true on, on LSAT, but what I, you know, the trend over the last 20 years since I started doing this is that they're steering away from things that are eminently preppable, right? The SAT started this trend in, in 05 when they revamped the test. They said, the problem is that all of these test prep companies have spent tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to make billions of dollars by telling people exactly what's on the test and creating something you can prep for. So their whole aim was make it less preppable. Um, but that means that if they go away from long lists of memorization and, you know, roots and prefixes and suffixes and all, all the rest of it, and instead go to skill-based things, which is what the LSAT is, great, it's less preppable, but it's more teachable, right? Because then what we do is we teach the skills. It's more trainable. Why should anybody object to that? I mean, if you're teaching the skills, aren't you teaching precisely the things they think are important for these educational opportunities? One would hope. God, it's too simple for the average mind, isn't it? That's why we, you know, we do things the way we do it and not the way that the other models that are out there, because we believe deeply in teaching the skills and not the shortcuts. And uh, it, it, we probably would be more successful in our business if we didn't believe that. But it just it happens to be what we believe. So we, you know, act on it. 
I had an interesting conversation about this with a friend of mine who's a real estate broker here in New York. And, and, and I think there are a lot of parallels in the service industry. And he worked for a, for a smaller firm who really tried to do things the right way. You know, they, they were honest with their clients. Everything was transparent. <laughs> um, you know, th there was no bait and switch. They were, they were always sharing commissions. Um, and and the, the ownership made it very clear that what we want is a long-term vision on success. We're not trying to scramble to grow as fast as we can and get everybody in the door and worry about worry about taking their money today and not worry about outcomes tomorrow. My business has always been about I would rather have fewer students, but be additive to them so that they come back in 10 years. And the next time they see me, they say, Jake, I remember that lesson and that lesson I've carried with me for the last 10 years. That's how I know I'm doing a good job as an educator. And if it means fewer students, but I can do a better job at really laying good groundwork so that they can build a build something solid and 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 forward facing that that's that's what i want well that that's your personal goal and that's why i'm doing it this long i mean nobody could be in the kind of business that you're in for the length of time you've been if you didn't think in that way yeah. i believe i believe yeah. all right um so Let's kind of come close to wrapping this up here a little bit, going back to this correlation versus causation stuff. Uh, let's close with each of you giving a one minute or so piece of advice on what should people do here? I mean, I, I would say start with identifying what it means for a claim or an argument to be causal, right? What does that mean? What are you looking for? And then in your own practice, in your self-study practice, take those questions, know what the right answer is, and start developing a framework for yourself. Start collecting, eh, collecting data. Collect data for yourself about what these questions are asking and what kind of answers they are providing as the correct ones. And see if you can design something that makes sense to you here. Is it just about the numbers or is it about, I'm gonna give you a hint, it's about something more than just the numbers. But what are those other things that when it comes to causal claims, therefore A causes B, okay, what are the things that that argument uh, has in it? And what are, the, what are the pieces, what are those necessary pieces other than the data uh, that you need in order to make that claim? Mm -hmm. All right, and your thoughts, Keith? You know, what I did, I got into LSAT prep through a large provider and so I was sort of steeped in the materials before I realized that I preferred approach that was less steeped in the materials. So what I would tell students because they're mostly steeped in the materials too is take everything out there about causation. I mean there's there's very little but go get it and, and read it, consume it and understand it you know really well and then start to seek resources outside of the LSAT um other sources of information about causation and start to graph the two together take the simplistic models that the lsat guides are giving you and start to graft onto those some of the realities and complexities that are you know actually exist in thinking and reasoning about causation okay all right well that's those are interesting thoughts for sure and this does sound like, especially given what you're telling me about the percentage of questions that seem to beckon with these concepts, it's obviously important. Okay, so uh, again, in closing, if you want to just give your coordinates. 
Uh, sure, you can you can reach me at nexusacademics.com, uh, or you can find me on Facebook either at Nexus Academics, or you can just search for my name and I'm around. Yeah, I'm I'm at Last Call Bar Academy, and the main product that we work on together is called Triple Review, and so that's a good way to, you know, see our study strategy and uh, start to consume our philosophy. The Triple Review platform is really the central like pillar of it. And you can find that at tripplereview.online. Okay. And finally, uh, both Keith and Jake are major participants in Facebook LSAT Study Group, which you can find at lsatstudygroup.com. And uh, this is great. Thanks very much. And we will pick it up next time. Thanks, Thank John. you.